the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into hour two of our daily three-hour tour. When the mud hits the fan, when things you don't want hit the fan in a legal sense, there's a handful of lawyers in this country you want on your side or you want to hire. One of them is James Trusty. Jim Trusty is a partner at the IFRA Law Firm, 28 years as a prosecutor, including at the Department of Justice and an assistant U.S. attorney. Jim, welcome back to the Airwaves of Phoenix. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for the uh, the lovely, if only half accurate introduction about how good I am. <laughs> uh, all of it was accurate, Jim, including including how much I enjoy talking to you. But I will call you. I've got to make a point to call you when things aren't hitting the fan. When Cuomo's when the report from the attorney general in the state of New York came out today on Andrew Cuomo, truly you were the first person I, I, I thought of wanting your analysis and helping us kind of unpack some of it. We'll do the political part in a moment. But as a matter legally – um, it's it's kind of a weird hybrid of what's taken place here, isn't it? There were allegations of criminal activity, but the AG said this was a civil series or a series of civil findings, and it really doesn't have any next legal step, right? Can you unpack some of this for us, Jim? Yeah, no, that, that, those are great observations. It's, it's a strange bird. You know, we, we've started to get used to this concept of reports when it comes to criminal investigations, yeah. or at least investigations into criminal activities. And it's really the exception. I mean, normally prosecutors operate where they either indict or they don't. Right. And so we're in this kind of strange new world. In this circumstance, remember, it was the governor's office in, in kind of an effort to deflect that said, okay, fine, we're asking the attorney general to look into these you know, allegations from 11 different women. The, the model that they used was essentially like you might do with an internal investigation. They, they looked at it. They made factual findings. Letitia James basically swore off criminal prosecution right. from the attorney general's office. But they certainly alleged and felt they had established a good number of events of harassment, some of which could technically be crimes as well as being the basis of, like, civil litigation. So. It's really unclear what, you know, obviously there's political fallout, but the legal fallout is not direct. We have to wait and see whether any local DA's office takes up the charge on some of these physical incidents or whether any of the victims take up the charge with civil litigation. And, Jim, you could have theoretically a series of technical speak, dual sovereignty stuff, right? Some of this could be local, but some of this could be federal civil rights, couldn't it? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, I think you have Title VII implications. Right. You have some civil litigation there based on a pattern of harassment. Right. Um, I think you have, uh, frankly, depending on where the physical location is, if any of the events took place in New York City, they have a very expansive, primarily civil law with a seven-year statute of limitations uh -huh. that deals with gender-based harassment. Uh -huh. so uh -huh. there's, a, there's a big gotcha there if anything happened in the city as opposed to the governor's mansion. Um, but again, I, you know, I don't expect it. I mean, these are difficult cases. I think it becomes mostly a political issue, don't you? 
I think that's right. I mean, they're, they're difficult cases criminally as individual cases because we're talking about often late reported kind of technical touches. Now, I think they're pretty well corroborated and established. I think there's some real lowlights in this report in terms of believable allegations at uh, Cuomo's expense. But it's not necessarily the stuff that's going to lead to a, to a, a high-powered criminal case anytime soon. Yeah, I think I think you're right about that, or at least you know, just reading the tea leaves. That's 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 where I'm guessing uh, it will go. It, probably the New York Assembly weighing in today, Joe Biden weighing in today, Nancy Pelosi weighing in today, and the two senators weighing in will matter more than 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 a prosecutor who thinks he might have a case here is how I'm reading that. But did you? One of the comments I wanted from you, Jim, every, everyone wants to, to, to give their advice on this one. Did you, did you happen to see Andrew Cuomo's part or at least por- portions of his response today, at least parts of it? Because it sounds yeah, like I mean, a lot of people are saying if I were his attorneys, I would not have let him do that. Well, that's, that's been an issue from the beginning with him. I mean, he has gotten out in front and tried to disparage uh, the accusations, and he's, you know, he's not lacking self-confidence, and that makes for a difficult client because, you know, you tell the guy, look, I know you're used to being on TV every day, but you are sinking yourself by essentially changing your story, sounding defensive, attacking the accusers. I mean, in the beginning of this, he said, oh, I'll put my faith in the independent investigation, and by today, he's saying they're political hacks that were out to get me. And the report, of course, has him blaming the victims for a lot of the conduct, saying, oh, well, they were very clingy and they were holding me tight and I just didn't want to make a big issue of it. So it's really, you know, I guess on one level he's very consistent in his narcissism and in his ability to try to deflect, but it's not it's not playing well at this point. Well, it's and an... He's uh, had a tough time with him. I think it's not playing well is a, is a good way to put it. And I also just think this... this um, I, re- I read through uh, his 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 response, his eighty five page response, and one of the oddest things about it, I guess you'd call it an appendix. I, uh, it's just picture after picture. I mean, there must be forty pages. Did you see this? Pictures of other people hugging and kissing people on the cheek. That's not what this is about. But he has Joe Biden and Barack right. Obama and Hillary Clinton. That's not what this is about. It, it's an odd thing as if he's trying to take down everyone around him. It's just a very odd thing. I think this is a man well, that, who's not in possession of things. <laughs> well, I think, you know, he, he's been put up on a pedestal as a as a uh, model governor during the pandemic, as a, you know, a hilarious wit with his brother on TV. I mean, it's not really shocking that he's kind of believed his own press clippings over the years on this and that he would essentially flail out at everybody. But when you look at the findings in this report, you know, to go to your point about hugs and kisses yeah. not being enough. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a number. I think there's a number of like horrific lowlights, one of which taking advantage of a woman who is already a sexual assault right. victim and, right. and going after her. Another is getting a trooper hired to your detail when she's not supposed to be on it yep. because she'd only had two years on, yep. and then assaulting her on an elevator. And then I, I guess the last thing I'd say, Seth, is there's a there's a big element of retaliation and obstruction in these findings, right. and that should be worrisome to anybody. I mean, to see that he would send out confidential files of the victims to the media because they had the temerity to challenge him, I mean, that's pretty outrageous stuff. I don't know your political affiliation, I could guess, but even if you were a Democrat, Jim, or if you are a Democrat, wouldn't you at this point say that 
um, Andrew Cuomo has so much lost his base that he's basically lost the credibility even to govern and just has to go by dint of the fact that the president and his state senators and legislature have told him to go. Well, I do think there's some some new momentum on that. But I, I tell you, I, I've, I've gotten pretty jaded about betting on Albany. I'm with you on that. Right. I'm with you um, on that. You know, it's a different look. I, I mean, there, what's kind of ironic about all this, and it's not to make light of how horrific the culture was in his executive mansion and how harmful the behavior was towards these women. But there's a whole other chapter where people died, and he seems yep. to be getting a free pass on that politically and legally. So, no. Yeah, there, there's some irony to that, that he's being brought down. I guess it's a little bit of Al Capone, although this is more serious than tax evasion. It's a little Michael so Avenatti-esque, maybe. <laughs> well, the story is similar, right? I mean, yeah. You've got these guys that are built up. Yeah, the hero, the shadow Trump. president. Yeah, you bet. Right. And, uh, you know, then after a while, the media goes, well, maybe they weren't such wonderful human beings, and, and they'll finally turn on them. So I think that's what we're going to see is a pretty concerted effort. To, to get him out, but he so far he doesn't strike me as the type of guy who's going to, uh, you know, climb into the helicopter and wave goodbye. Uh, I think he's going to fight for a while longer unless people can really grab him by the lapels. Jim, uh, we're talking to Jim Trusty, former federal prosecutor, partner with Ifra Law. Jim, um, speaking of the media, are you troubled uh, by the involvement this report details from the attorney general? That included a CNN host and his brother, Chris. It turns out, if you read this report, Chris, who was interviewed in this investigation, was actually advising his brother on communication and crisis management talking points while at the same time interviewing him on other things. At CNN. Does that, is that problematic for you? Yeah, I mean, not the first time that the uh, that the mainstream media is, is behaving in a way that's pretty outrageous. I mean, he shouldn't have been covering his brother, period, much less straddling the line mm-hmm. of uh, covering him and advising him at the same time. But, you know, I, I suppose, Seth, maybe we should go to Jeff Tubin's right. comment right. on this. They right? did. I mean, they did. Not- that's how much <laughs> CNN is a cartoon news network. They did. Yeah. <laughs> they went to Jeff uh, Tubin for his legal analysis uh, without even without even a trace of irony, right? Uh, no, with no trace of irony. I'm surprised they didn't try and get a visitation visa for Michael Avenatti's comments. Well, it's still early. It's but, still uh, yeah, early. No, it's, Someone's working on it. it it's, really, it's really an amazing uh, lack of self-awareness and, or lack of, you know, it's kind of the death of journalism, right? I mean, it's just a complete lack of concern with conflicts of interest and objectivity and speaking truth to power. I mean, they are essentially an appendage of the Democratic Party. They're comfortable with that, and they don't seem to have any interest in changing it. Jim, on the, uh, on the, on the, legal, uh, on the legal stuff, I heard a lot of commentary today from uh, other former uh, prosecutors, TV and radio, saying that this report and the allegations in it could be used in um, if 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 there were a criminal indictment, if there were a civil case or a criminal case, is that right? Can it or would a lot of it be excluded? Do you think? Well, it's not direct. I mean, you can't just basically say, "Hey, dear jury, read this, this is in the record." Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. So so there's evidentiary rules that that require firsthand establishing of facts, not just some sort of hearsay report, which is what this would be. But I suppose it gave a roadmap to a prosecutor or a plaintiff. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a lead, as a thing to say, look, this is, you know, this is a pretty detailed report. It tells us what people said in depositions. Um, Yeah, it's certainly, you know, a, a nice start at a prosecution memo, although, again, you still have to 
you know, build the case with live witnesses and live documents. But I'll say this, to their credit in this report, you know, we're talking about 74,000 documents they reviewed, 70 subpoenas. They interviewed almost 200 people, deposed about 40 of them. This is no check-the-box exercise. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty darn comprehensive, pretty helpful if you're either mapping out civil litigation or a possible criminal case. Jim, let me ask you a dumb question I should have asked a long time ago in 1L or something, but I never did criminal. I only did civil. Is the, um, is the exception, the evidentiary exception of, of a statement against interest by a party opponent, does that, does that apply in criminal? In other words, can, can, is there a hearsay exception about what people say he did? Well, the, the, the exception of statement against interest is typically essentially an admission by that person. Okay. And it's pretty close to what they call admission by party opponents. Right. So that would mean if in his deposition, that's all fair game okay. to use in a criminal or civil okay. case. Okay. And, that, and that's why people have a Fifth Amendment privilege in mm-hmm. civil litigation that they can assert because they know it could be used against them later in a different setting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, his statements could be used without requiring you know live testimony from him. Everybody else would have to basically yeah. recreate most likely would have to recreate it themselves. If they're not on the other side of the case, exactly right. Okay, good. That that clarifies it. Well, Jim, on a busy day like today, I really appreciate your thoughts and insight. Is there anything I didn't ask you that stuck out that you wanted to get out on? Uh, I'll ask you before no, we... No, no, no. Listen, I think it's, a, it's an interesting day. I mean, this is not the usual model for prosecution right. to have these big reports for all to see, but I, I sure enjoy reading them. They're interesting reads, and... Hopefully there'll be some consequences this time. Well, it dawns on me, you know, just in conclusion, you're saying we're kind of getting used to this. And one of the things that kind of rang a bell, uh, kind of rang a bell a little bit like the independent counsel's report on Russian collusion. It kind of this one is stronger. This has conclusions that didn't. And that, of course, was the the weak. What I think was the weaker of the two, the special prosecutor's report, you know, the Louis, uh, the um, the. uh, What's his name report? The former director's Mueller. report, mm-hmm. the Mueller report. You know, he kind of said, OK, you do what you want. And they took it up as as, as impeachable as a, as cause for an impeachable an impeachment trial. And that was a far a, a lot less. That didn't have the conclusions this has. So I'm thinking an impeachment trial at a minimum, if he doesn't go, is on in the offing. But as you say, we have to temper it because uh, all the rules have thrown out when there's a D attached to your name. Right. <laughs> Pretty bad, particularly in New York. So, yeah, I mean, it's an open question. But I think there's a momentum there where people are going to be watching to see if he'll finally step down over these next couple of days. And if not, they'll maybe reluctantly, but probably, hopefully, gin up uh, a full impeachment proceeding. Well, Jim Trusty, you're a great teacher and a great attorney. I appreciate it. Fantastic guest, too. Thanks for making yourself available to us today. Really, really appreciate you. Oh, happy to do it. Thanks for having me on. Thank Seth. you. God bless you, sir, and Godspeed. I'm Seth Leibson, 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. It's that time of year. The sun is scorching and our unpredictable monsoon season is back, and that means it's time to talk about your roof, which means it's time to talk Trades Unlimited. The damage being done to your roof is constant. Heat, wind, rain, and even dust bring daily challenges to your roof and over time cause significant damage. As a homeowner, you likely don't even know is happening. If your roof is 15 years or older, the underlayment must be checked now. At 15 years old, the underlayment dries out, cracks, and then becomes susceptible to all sorts of leaks. Some you see, some you don't. Maybe for some of you, it's time to consider a foam roof. For those who have a flat roof, the benefits of foam are insulation from atrocious heat and help in silencing the noise and protecting against water leaks. 
If you already have a foam roof that's five years old or more, it's time to have it inspected and recoated because it's likely disintegrating. Before the leaks begin, give Trades Unlimited a call for all your roofing needs. Repair, inspection, you name it. Repair, inspection, or even a new roof, foam or otherwise. It's a company I use. Visit them online at tradesunlimited.com. That's tradesunlimited.com. And tell them Seth sent you. Uh, Tale of Two Olympians, uh, you have on the one hand uh, Gwambari, and then on the other hand you have this wonderful wrestler who spoke this morning draped in an American flag to Myra Mensah stock saying this to Myra, yeah? Pretty good. How does that feel to represent your country like this? It feels amazing. I love representing the U.S. I love living there. I love it, and I'm so happy I get to represent U.S.A. <laughs> love it. Well, well said. Congratulations. Enjoy that gold, and we'll see you out there on the podium, okay? Thank you. I'll try not to cry. <laughs> Just fantastic. That's the entirety of that audio clip. Fantastic. Loves representing the USA draped in an American flag, as opposed to Gwen Berry, who said, I respect my people enough to not stand or acknowledge something that disrespects them. I love my people, point blank, period. If you know your history, you know the full song of the national anthem. The third paragraph speaks to slaves in America. It's disrespectful. doesn't speak for black Americans. It's obvious. There's no question, close quote. Every part of that is wrong. First of all, I don't know a history professor, much less an American history professor, who can tell me the third verse of the national anthem. Not one. The third paragraph. Sorry, third paragraph of the National Anthem. In fact, one of the ways our intelligence committees, excuse me, our intelligence agencies used to ferret out spies and double agents was to ask if they knew the National Anthem. And if they sang beyond the traditional that we know, we knew we weren't dealing with an American. It's not taught. It's not sung. It's not celebrated. It's not used. Point one. Point two the reference to slavery in it has nothing to do with black slaves. Nothing. Zero. Has to do with treating people as slaves. White, black, any color you want. It's obvious. There's no question, Gordon Berry said. You know what's obvious and there's no question about? You know what the, what's obvious and that there is no question about? Tamira Mensa stock and her reasoning for being at the Olympics, and her love for this country, and the pride she had in competing for it, standing for it, and draping herself in its flag with a smile worth millions of dollars. More Tamira's, less Gwen's. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero. 
I want to just shift topics for a moment so you understand how bias and the Democrats work, shaping the narrative works. Do you have Jen Psaki's opening from the press conference today? Jen Psaki, uh, the White House press secretary, um, does her daily press briefing, did so today, and she knew what every reporter in that room knew, which is there's one story today, and it's Andrew Cuomo, and that she was going to be asked about it. And the main question was whether Joe Biden was going to abide by what he said two months ago, that if the attorney general's report concludes that Andrew Cuomo's accusers were right, then Andrew Cuomo needs to resign. That's what the reporters wanted to ask. Will Joe Biden stand by that statement from two months ago? And they have reason to wanting to know that, given that two months ago he said, if you're vaccinated, you don't need to wear a mask. Things change. Things happen, you see. Nothing is ever settled. How can it be? When you live in a crisis industrial state, when you have a permanent revolution mentality, phrase that comes out of Karl Marx, that's their mentality. So the, how do you shift that narrative? Let's see what we can do, what we can do, what we can do. How do we get off our backs the notion that the Democrats have done wrong here? What do we do? Oh, will open this way. And here's how she opened her press conference. I have a couple of items for all of you at the top. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to recognize the passing of Metropolitan Police Officer Gunther Hashida and Officer Kyle DeFredig, two officers who bravely defended the Capitol both during and after the insurrection on January 6th. Their deaths are a sad reminder of that shameful day in our country's history and of the physical and mental scars it left the officers who risked their lives Stop to protect Stop it there for her. a second. Just, okay, we gave it to you. I want you to pay a special attention now. Now that you know the sense of what she's saying, start it over. I have a couple of items for all of you at the top. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to recognize the passing of Metropolitan Police Officer Gunther Hashida and Officer Kyle DeFredig. Two officers who bravely defended the Capitol both during and after the insurrection on January 6th. Their deaths are a sad reminder of that shameful day in our country's history and of the physical and mental scars it left the officers who risked their lives to protect our Capitol. If you listen to her, don't you think what I thought when I heard it and I was driving around when I heard it for when I heard her say it live, physical and mental, don't you get the sense that these are people that died from their injuries sustained on January 6th? Do it again. Take it from the top again. That's the implication here. They finally fell to their injuries from January 6th is the implication. Is it not? Play it again. Tell me if I'm wrong here. I have a couple of items for all of you at the top. Uh, I wanted to take a moment to recognize the passing of Metropolitan Police Officer Gunther Hashida and Officer Kyle DeFredig. Two officers who bravely defended the Capitol both during and after the insurrection on January 6th. Their deaths are a sad reminder of that shameful day in our country's history and of the physical and mental scars it left the officers who They're a reminder of that shameful day. They didn't die from injuries sustained on January 6th. What was curious to me is when she said defended the Capitol that day and after. They died over the past week, tragically, from suicide. 
tragically. And obviously, suicide is um, is no stranger to people who don law enforcement uniforms. It's a problem. Had no connection to January 6th that's been substantiated. They went to work the next day, as she points out. I mean, we can get into PTSD and all that if you want to, but it takes us to a leap of logic that doesn't exist on the record. Shame on them. Shame on them. Who knows what ailments these officers were fighting. But by her standard, any time a D.C. cop or Capitol Police officer dies, because it was one of each, any time one dies, is that the new thing we say? Reminds us of what took place on January 6th? Is that the point here? Shame on her for exploiting these officers' deaths. Shame on her. You know, another officer died today protecting the Pentagon, was killed by a knife in the Force Protection Department at the Pentagon, died doing his job and for what he was doing at the hands of an assailant. How about mentioning him at least as well? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960. It's interesting watching in real time liberals and entertainers deleting tweets about Andrew Cuomo, including a New York Times op-ed, Andrew Cuomo is the control freak we need right now. Uh, NPR, longtime observers say New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's character traits are decisiveness, listening to the experts, and sticking to facts. One of my uh, favorite ones is uh, the Huffington Post. Andrew Cuomo says he's eligible for dating. But this one may take all the cake because this is from a particularly loathsome person in Chelsea Handler. Quote, thank you, Andrew Cuomo. Thank you for reminding us that there are men who can lead and be clear and tell the truth. This is Chelsea Handler writes a love letter to Andrew Cuomo titled, I Want to Be Your First Lady. It's really very amusing watching all of these getting deleted as they are. I um, I was thinking about a conversation I had with my friend Jim the other day. And it was the other day. It was a week ago, my goodness, when there was talk about whether Anthony Fauci knew, didn't know, lied, or didn't lie under oath about funding gain-of-function research and having knowledge a priori about what was taking place at the Wuhan Virology Lab. And my friend said, Jim said, you know, this will be, if proven that Anthony Fauci knew and lied, this will be the biggest story of the year, or should be. And I said, it's that or should be thing that worries me. Because this was working. The be- this, this was a major story. This was a major story. A major story. But where's the follow-up? Whatever happened to that story? It was a week ago. Anthony Fauci 
was on the ropes. By this Sunday, all the news shows had him on to speak very technically and exquisitely about the Delta variant. No questions about what Rand Paul exposed. No questions about what what others have exposed. And I have to take some of that thinking that what becomes or should become a big story really never does. It's a version of what I.F. Stone, Izzy Stone, the uh, renegade journalist once said. It's a joy reading the Washington Post every morning and trying to figure out what page the front page story is on. There was a huge ally of ours in Afghanistan in the Northern Alliance known as uh, Shah Massoud, Ahmed Shah Massoud, I think I have the name right, who people later said was the best ally the United States would ever have. Really tough fighter, had the Taliban on the run wherever he went. And he was killed a few days before 9-11, 2001. And there was a small blurb about it in the New York Times. Page 17 something like that. Pretty good example. Pretty good example of what page is the front page story on and what should be paid attention to and what shouldn't. What was the New York Times caring about? Honest to God, honest to God, on the day of 9-11, they did a big promo of a book release by Bill Ayers. The pullout quote from which was, In respect to the bombings of the Pentagon, I'd do it all over again. Honest to God, that was in the New York Times on 9-11-2001. Obviously, the paper was printed the night before, or we small hours before the attacks. But between the news of the killing of our greatest ally in the Northern Alliance who had the Taliban on the run, the murdering of him by al-Qaeda and the Taliban, and the New York Times... Fetchrift, celebration, apotheosization of Bill Ayers. You can appreciate what liberal media thinks is important. Shaw got page 17. No one at the New York Times thought, why would he be killed? Why now? In a suicide explosion. It became evident. It became evident why he was killed. Should I gild the lily? Al-Qaeda and the Taliban wanted to get rid of our guy on the ground for the ultimate invasion of that which would take place, that which they knew would take place. They had one stumbling block before hitting the United States, and that was getting rid of Ahmad Shah. My longer point about this is what should be news isn't and what isn't is. And so when I say Andrew Cuomo will be gone in 48 hours, that's based on the observations in life that something like the killing of our greatest ally in Afghanistan should have been big news. Or it should be big news that Anthony Fauci admitted to lying to the American people when he changed the numbers, shifting the goalposts was his phrase, on what would constitute herd immunity. If your physician lied to you, about what you needed to do 
You'd bring him up on charges at the Board of Medical Examiners. Anthony Fauci gets away with it. Just like the governor of Virginia gets away with it. Just like Nancy Pelosi got away with it. Just like Gavin Newsom got away with it. Until and unless there is a political solution. You cannot rely on the media. So I had a... uh, a dear listener emailed me earlier in the day saying, thanks for your great program. Thank you. As you point out, we are inundated with a flood of attacks across a wide spectrum of our culture. My question, how are we as conservatives to react? And perhaps more importantly, how are we to act? What are we to do? Where do we begin? It's a big question. It's an important question. It's a pregnant question. I'll attempt to answer it in the next segment. And happy to take your calls on your ideas, too. I'm Seth. We'll be right back. Email from a listener I was just mentioning. Seth, uh, he writes, how are we as conservatives to react to everything that's thrown our way? And perhaps more importantly, how are we to act? What are we to do? Where do we begin? Uh, I heard Mark Levin say something the other day. I think it was in a promo, but from his show, where he said the first rule is not mostly peaceful, always peacefully. Start there. The how is always peacefully. I'm with Mark Levin four square on that. Always peacefully. How are we to react? How are we? What are we to do? Where do we begin? We're making a pretty good start by waking up to something a few of us have been talking about for two decades. Ronald Reagan made the case that all change begins at the dinner table. Hard to argue with Ronald Reagan. But when he said that, the American family was much more intact than it is today, and there was usually a parent at that dinner table. All change actually starts with where the left tells you it starts. Why do you think they're writing books for preschoolers on racism? Why do you think they're starting with preschoolers? Why do you think Ibram X. Kendi is working with Netflix on a series aimed at kindergartners and first graders? All great change and all lousy change as far as I'm concerned, right now, begins in the schools. For 20 years, we've been talking about running for school board. It ain't sexy, but look what these members who are finally waking up, the excuse me, these parents are finally waking up to are doing. That's where you start. You don't need money. You don't need a lot of campaigning. You don't need a lot of votes. The Democrats got this and swept through and took them over with the virus that they learned from the ivory towers. That's the real viral leak in this country. What critical race theory and its attendants let leak from the ivory tower into our American school system and the rest of our culture. Take back the schools. When you're done with the schools, 
then let's start working on the churches and the synagogues. You give me better schools, better churches, and better synagogues, I'll give you back 90% of the problems that face this country. I'm Seth Leapson, the great Lewis Hallman, coming right in. We'll be right back.